Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. You can get on our mailing list, find show notes, transcripts, as well as videos at narrativespodcast.com. Thanks. John, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing all right. How are you? <laughs> good, good. Thanks for coming on. Um, our first big question is, you know, can you give us just kind of a brief bio and, and some of the big things you're interested in? Uh, yeah. Uh, I've been blogging now for, for more than five years. I mean, I just realized that time, time flies, doesn't it? And, you know, while I, my blog is called Everything Studies, and that kind of signifies that I am, I think I am anyway, interested in, in almost everything and especially how different things compare to each other, different topics compare to each other, different, uh, different fields of study and different types of knowledge. Uh, but what I'm focusing on I think, and what's sort of become the brand of the blog is uh, is disagreement, both as a process when people are disagreeing and talking about what they're disagreeing about, and the very phenomenon that people think differently about things, they feel differently about things, they have different beliefs, and how does that work exactly? Gotcha. Yeah, uh, but uh, I also write about many different things like... Uh, I have some articles about fiction, about art, about uh, aesthetics uh, also. Uh, I just released uh, an article where I basically basically gushed for thousands of words over a uh, visual encyclopedia I had when I was a kid. That one was mostly for me, but some people liked it as well. I did. <laughs> Thanks. That was that was a great post, and, and we'll actually come back to that a little bit later in the uh, the show. But, you know, how did, how did you settle on disagreement, you know, and, and what was really interesting about that? And, and what is aerosology? <laughs> well, strictly speaking, is not, it's not anything at all. Uh, because it's just a word that I made up because I realized there was no word for really the topic that I wanted to write about. Disagreement as a, as a, as a topic of study. I mean, there, there's some philosophy in there, there's rhetoric in there, there's uh, sociology in there, there's psychology in there. Um, but we don't have a word for, the no, for knowledge and understanding of disagreement the way we have words for under, understanding of life, which is biology, and understanding of the stars, which is astronomy, and so on and so on. Uh, I wanted to use that word because I thought there should be, there should be a word for, for the understanding of disagreement. And not necessarily as a narrow field of study, but more like something that has its own it has its own subject in school and its own section in bookstores, that, that, that kind of thing. I wanted it to be a popular understanding of this as a domain of knowledge. That makes sense. And how did you settle on disagreement? Was it kind of like, has it always been something you've been thinking about or was there like a specific point or it, did it just kind of emerge over time? I think I wrote in my first or second blog post that the things that people disagree about probably overlaps pretty well with things that are interesting to think about. 
so maybe I just came to disagreement because I'm interested in many different things and I saw, I see the difference between them. It's not something I settled on exactly. It's something I came to because of several different, uh, several different things that came together. I, I've always been very much into uh, philosophy, philosophical questions, philosophical issues, and uh, the sort of... Uh, they're the sort of things that philosophers discuss, some of them at least. Um, and then, of course, also uh, uh, psychology. I've studied both the history of uh, history of thought and psychology at uh, university. And I've been fascinated about why people think differently about things. Um, for example, why people like different music and why they like different movies and different, uh, different books is for some reason really, really fascinating to me. And I think that relates quite strongly also to why people have different opinions about politics, social life, philosophical questions, scientific questions, things like that. I, um, I think that's all connected. Uh, and that's why, that's why I think basically all my interests can come together under the umbrella of disagreement. And of course, also, I've been addicted to reading when, when forums was a bigger thing than they are today. Now everything is on social, like social media, but when forums used to be a big thing, I was kind of addicted to reading discussions. And uh, I got familiar with how people used to misunderstand each other deliberately by accident or semi-deliberately. And I, I just got aware of these patterns. Interesting. Interesting. I... I do wonder, what do you think, you know, people disagree, they have different preferences about, you know, let's say just art, like art in general. Do you think that's uh, like some genetic inbuilt difference people have, you know, just some people are just predisposed to that? Or is there, or do we copy high status people within our groups? And then that becomes what we're interested in and, and kind of differentiates us? Or is it something else or everything all together? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that it's probably a little of each. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> no, but um, my, my wife just said to me uh, when we were having a discussion about something that I believe that everything is innate, or at least she thinks that I believe that everything is innate. I don't exactly think that. I do think that innate things are almost always in some way relevant, even if it's very, very indirect. Um, because I think like, like inborn personality difference differences they don't like decide what we what kind of music we like but they probably do affect how our sort of emotional system works how we are we what what sort of feelings we're we're more susceptible to and uh, some sort of thing about what what we like and that will interact with other things in our environment and in our experience to to produce things like taste in music like I remember the first time, I mean, there's some, there, there's obviously something for habit, but it's also not just habit. There are things I hear many times and I don't like them. But the first time I heard, I've actually heard it described the first time before hearing it in um, Gödel Echerbach, the book by uh, Douglas Hofstadter. Uh, he described how the, let's see if I can get it right here. The, the jig from Bach's French suite number five. He had described how it worked with a counterpoint and everything. And when the first time I listened to it, I, I, I thought I was going to listen to it to see if I could understand what he was saying. And the first time I listened to it, it just sounded perfect to me. 
I loved it for the first time. And that, that's not something that I have gotten used to. It was, it's quite different from most music you hear today, but that was just something that went straight into my brain. And I think there's something, something there that just means that, you know, you're, um, yeah, you're just predisposed to some things. Definitely. That's a really good example where, you know, you, <laughs> first time you're supposed to be like, wow, like this, this is it. This is, this is really, this is good. And this aligns with my preferences really well. Yeah. So it's lock, like a lock and key, which I found really interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm sad that my, my daughters don't seem to share this, this taste. Whenever, whenever they hear some instrumental music come on, they just say, no, take this away. It's boring. <laughs> I try wonder. to get them to listen for like 10 seconds and you just won't yeah <laughs> my taste in literature and fiction and even non-fiction aligns really well with my parents and i've just given up on thinking that my taste in music is predictive of their taste in music at all i was gonna say when you brought out that list of things people have different tastes about that that one has always seemed like a, a bit of an odd one out to me because I can't get it to in my personal life I can't get it to correlate but it seems so intuitive that it should yeah I mean I don't necessarily think that there's a simple relationship between what you like and what your parents like I mean sometimes things you know thing, things run in families but i think it's usually a lot more complicated than that you, you throw all these kinds of ingredients into a big pot and you you boil it and you add spices and whatever and you don't know what comes out and the end product well a, a human being is like a is like a dish it's it's a matter of what ingredients you put in and it's a matter of how you prepare it and it's not just one of the one of the two but you can get you can change the ingredients quite a lot depending on how you prepare them. Yeah, I think that's a good. That's a really good way to model it. Um, John, yeah, I've, been, I've been going to. I've been. I've been thinking. I'm going to write an article about that for like six years. Uh, any day now, I'm going to do it. <laughs> Excellent. I love it, uh, John. What are some of the the weirder things like people would not expect that you found? You know, studying disagreement. Uh, yeah, weirder things. I don't know exactly about weirder things. One, one thing that sort of surprised me that I kind of reasoned myself to by, re by reading other things and looking at observations is I've always been curious about when people, well, it's always irritated me a lot when I see people misrepresenting others. Like these people yeah. think that and like, and I'm always like, no, no, they don't think that. And if, if you said that to them, they would not agree that they think what you say they think. So why are you saying something about other people that aren't true that they wouldn't agree with? Um, and I always wonder, like, do people do that with full intent? I'm going to misrepresent these people. Or is it just some kind of mistake? Do you actually believe that it's true and you're just telling the truth? But... I remember after reading uh, reading The Elephant in the Brain by Robin Hanson and Kevin Simler. Uh, you're nodding, so I, I guess you read book. it too. It's really good. About how much, how much of what we do is unconscious social maneuvering, more or less. And we do this, and our, our feelings is very much, our feelings and you know, intuitive reactions to things are very much geared up to produce actions on our part that will help us socially um, 
but we won't necessarily be aware of that because our conscious mind is perhaps more a press secretary than a, than a CEO of of the of the firm that is that is our mind. Uh, and I was I keep thinking about that because I I've been writing before I mean years before that an article about the the phrase war on Christmas. I'm I'm making air quotes now, but <laughs> I, you won't see that on a podcast. But I, I am, um, and how people sort of interpret it as meaning different things depending on whether they wanted it to be true or not and i kind of realized together with 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 what uh, hansen and similar said in that book i came to believe that people make these kind of interpretations of ambiguous ambiguous statements and most statements are much more ambiguous than we think they are we think lots of things have uh, straightforward meanings but but usually they don't especially especially very abstract and, and loaded things like that so people interpret what these ambiguous statements mean and we do it in the way that sort of is, is most advantageous to our own point if, if we don't like somebody and we don't like what they have to say then we interpret whatever they say in a way that is wrong and unreasonable and then we think to ourselves that we disagree with them because they're wrong and unreasonable. When the disagreement or the dislike probably probably comes before. So I guess what surprised me a little bit or what I found explains a lot is that a lot of the time where we misrepresent other people, we are not doing it. We're not doing it on purpose, but we're also not doing it by accident. And the only way to, to model this, and I, I did this in an article called The Prince and the Figurehead, is that we have, diff there are different actors in our head. We're not a unified mind. And it's like we have this sleazy advisor that kind of feeds us propaganda that's meant to, you know, make us feel like we're just doing the right thing and we're just being honest, but we're also kind of stacking the deck in our social favor. Uh, so that that allows the that allows our our conscious self to not have to deal with the dirty work, and then instead we have other kind of un unconscious parts of our minds that deal that deal with that. It, it, it's interesting because before I never I, I've been thinking for a long time about how the mind is structured and uh, you know there's feelings and then there is the rational mind and so forth, and I never thought that the unconscious mind could do anything complicated. I just thought it could do like, you know, animalistic drives, appetites, that sort of thing. But the elephant in the brain convinced me that the unconscious mind could go, could do um, complicated and sophisticated strategic calculations without our being, without us being aware of it. And I think that's a huge factor in, uh, in people, well, disagreeing with each other or the process of disagreement specifically. It makes a lot of sense <laughs> and it explains a lot like, what's going on when you know people a lot of times when they're disagreeing they're signaling in group affiliation and then like you said that that is a, a really good insight that your unconscious mind is guiding you strategically to toward the, the outcome that would be more beneficial to you yeah and we automatically think that whatever uh, interpretation of something pops into our head that's that's the true one that's the right one and we don't even see the other ones that uh, that process happens before conscious awareness i think i think it was a comment either on the blog or on Twitter or something, when somebody linked this or connected this to, to a study of 
professional chess players, which is kind of interesting. Uh, they're professional chess players. They're, they're chess experts. And I read somewhere that there's a process when you get better at chess, when in the first, you know, in the beginning, you have to actually see, you have to think about how, what moves are legal. Right. But as as you get better, you just don't see the illegal moves. You just see, you know, what what, what yeah. you can do with the with the pieces. And eventually, as you get as you become an expert, you don't even see like the bad moves. You you feel like the only possible moves are the good moves. Interesting. And this person who said this to me said uh, there's probably something something similar here. As as you get get. Get a, you become an adult and you, you become good at arguing. You only see the interpretations that are beneficial to your own to your own side, your own point of view. And you just start pulling them off the table, and then like <laughs> you only see that's <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. How does one you know consciously break out of that? Is it even possible at some level? I think so. Uh, I think so. Um, I've gotten kind of obsessive about that. I look at something and, and somebody might say, look at what this person is saying. Like, oh, well, you could see that that way or you could see it that way. It really depends on what you mean by that and so on. I do that. I do that. Um, well, I think it would be good if other people did that more. I don't know if I can recommend it personally <laughs> because, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun to just, you know, feel like part of the group. But I, instead, I feel I have to twist and turn and examine everything anybody says and see if like what possible criticisms there are and how it could be true or, or not true or so and so forth. Uh, so it's uh, it's harder to get swept up in like community spirit. Right. <laughs> you, don't, you don't get the, you know, wear the team flag or whatever. Yeah. On the jersey. Like, oh, well, is this really true? I don't know. You know. <laughs> that kind of thing. Definitely, but yeah, I think you should uh, you should um, try to exercise that muscle in the sense that you should try to reinterpret something and see how could you see it in another way. I mean, I, I've got this other post that I've been uh, working on for like years, where I sketch out uh, you know like a curriculum for how to practice um, making certain understand making understanding of disagreement like second nature and one one thing I would make part of that is to take some story, like a new story or whatever, where somebody looks, you know, when somebody looks to be the clear villain and you try to concoct in your head some sort of, um, some sort of scenario or story where that person looks sympathetic, you know, try to make an effort to turn this around. How the heck can you make this person sympathetic? Uh, because uh, everybody is sympathetic in their own head. Right. You know, everybody thinks they're they're you know they're the good guy, and if you can't understand what it feels like for somebody you think is wrong to be right, then you don't really understand them. Is a lot of what's going on when people you know misrepresent or just like assume a lot of things we've been talking about? Is it just like a lack of theory of mind? So it's like I, I like I'm not understanding that. You know, John, like you, you have your own mind and, you know, you're thinking these things and you're also trying to optimize and be the best person you can be given the constraints. Yeah, I think, um, I think there's, uh, there's a lack of theory of mind in as much as it's a lack of explicit theory of mind. I think for a lot of the time, we just assume that other people are just like us. 
and we will and that they react the way we would react and when they don't we think there's something wrong with them i mean that they're being that they're being dishonest or that they're lying or that they're just wrong or something and we cannot really understand often that other people are simply different in what background beliefs they have what what things they want to focus on what they think is the most important or uh, what they assume or what what kind of frameworks they use to interpret what other people say because there's a lot of there's just a, a lot of um, symbolic implications in a lot of things that people say and we don't understand quite what other people what other people mean I just I feel like I'm repeating myself but uh, there's this understanding like when you go to a different country you understand that there might be culture shocks I right. mean if you're if you're if you're a competent traveler you understand that people might behave in ways you don't quite understand because standards are different or people may interpret your actions in ways that you don't intend because you know there are cultural differences i think we should take some of that mindset and apply it more in our everyday interactions i think that will be that will be useful because uh i think i've said this in a in some blog post or other that individual people are in ways like different cultures um, because compared to say a hundred years ago or even more we're not growing up uh, in tight-knit groups and we're not exposed to the same things or even like not, not just 100 years ago maybe 50 years ago or even 20 years ago we're not exposed to the same things we're exposed to very very different things and that builds up to you can say that we live in different worlds uh, not literally but you know it depends on what you mean by worlds of course but i'm not going to go into that but you know just that that kind of care and and special understanding that you that you uh, that you keep in mind if you if you're a competent traveler and you go to another country that i'm not sure how other people are going to see what i do and i'm going to be a little extra careful when interpreting what other people do as well uh the, yeah that's a mindset we should uh adopt a little more definitely and it, it definitely seems like people underrate how different other people's experiences and preferences are to their to their own for whatever reason it's yeah. kind of a middle shortcut i think a lot of people understand that if you if you you know if you ask explicitly but there's a there's a big difference between understanding something if you ask and you know keeping it active in your mind to have that idea that makes it, you know, having that idea, making itself heard when it's relevant, as opposed to just being there when it's when it's called upon. You see the difference? What I mean? You know? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Like truly, truly embodying it and understanding it is different from just like, oh yeah, like if I rationally thought through it, that that makes sense. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like people always, if if you ask people, should we divide people into us and them? They will say no, <laughs> and then they'll do it. Right. <laughs> basically yeah that would be a bad idea but <laughs> yeah <laughs> end up doing it anyway um yeah well but um quinn did you have, any, have a question uh no i was just it occurred to me you could phrase it as there's a difference between knowledge which actively filters our incoming perceptions when we synthesize them into thoughts and knowledge that you kind of you put in a drawer and you can take it out if you really need it, but usually it's not playing an active role. But I think that's just what you were already saying. So it's just me uh, rephrasing things in my head. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, also one of those posts I plan on writing sometime. Um, there's a difference between ideas that are like active and ideas that aren't. And we seem, I don't know, I think we seem pretty bad in general at making ideas active in that way, in that they know when to assert themselves. I keep, uh, I keep being appalled of how the way we teach kids like math for 10 years and they know how to do certain procedures, but then adults often seem to lack even the most basic mathematical understanding because it somehow hasn't made itself into an active part of the mind to think of things in those terms. Uh, I always do that and I, I, I can't really imagine what it's like to not easily think of things in mathematical terms, but that because I, I was studying a lot of math uh, and I think that's very useful but if we if we can you know put kids through ten years of it in school and it still doesn't stick in that way, how are we going to be able to you know inculcate ideas like well don't divide people into us and them be fair to other people, uh, you know don't assume that you you know too much and you know idea people are different ideas like that how are we going to get those to become like active instead of just you know being there on file to take out when you wanna when you wanna look good. It would flatter my ideological preconceptions, but I think it's also <laughs> facially uh, plausible that the schooling may in fact be harmful, that it um, teaches them that it necessitates even people who can't get conceptually to carry out the steps. And so they internalize that as a walled off compartmentalized thing that you do when some authority figure forces you to do it. Um, I'm very yeah. convinced that at least in theory, schooling can be uh, actively destructive towards an individual's attempt to understand the things that are nominally being taught. That yeah, yeah, probably. I've been somewhat skeptical about what good school does as well. Um, but we come back to the thing here about people being different. I think some people really need the structure yeah. of school. Yeah while other people might learn better on their own. And it's really hard to know. Yeah. So this, this, this one size fits all model is probably a disaster. But if we move away from it much more than we have, then we're also opening this giant can of worms in so many ways. Yeah. A lot of trade offs. So, uh, yeah. 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 Don't, don't ask me to reform schooling. <laughs> <laughs> John, uh, what is decoupling and why is it important? Oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we might not have enough time. Oh, dear. How, how far are we going? Well, like, okay. Uh, yeah. Decoupling is just an idea I had. Um, it's just an, it was just an afterthought, really. Uh, I wrote this really long article about, uh, about um, a fight, a disagreement, an argument, uh, a spat between uh, Sam Harris and Ezra Klein about basically the heritability of, uh, of intelligence and about race and about, you know, all the most controversial things you can imagine. And when I finished that piece, just a few days before, I had read a, a blog post on a blog called Dross Bucket that talked about cognitive decoupling that comes from uh, from a, 
I think it's coined by a psychologist called uh, Keith Stanovich, who says that some people are better at like abstracting a problem from reality and treating it like a formal exercise, like it's math rather than something that exists in reality. And something where you have to take everything that is real into account, as opposed to if you decouple, you will just, you know, remove all the real contexts and practical difficulties and, you know, ambiguities and just treat it as a kind of formal exercise, like a typical math problem. Uh, that's something that he studied. And then this blog post that I read, I think, I think she was using uh, the, the author, she was using uh, quotes from Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar about how he had found in school the, 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 like the, the sterile abstractions of physics. She kind of hated them and loved the, the, the sensory fullness of biology instead. And I had that in mind when I finished that, the, the article about, about um, Harris and Klein. So I, I added um, a section at the end where I said, maybe this is something to do with the coupling. Maybe the, the argument that they were having was partly about whether you could study you know, controversial scientific issues in isolation. And if you could judge them on surely you know, scientific merits or if they had to be, if you had to contextualize them historically and politically in order to be able to evaluate them. That was, that was basically a big part of their, of their uh, argument. And I thought maybe this is something to do with the coupling. Maybe people who like this sort of for, like formal abstraction and are more prone to doing that, maybe they're more prone to thinking that scientific issues should be studied without any sort of... Uh, uh, without making any uh, any reference to politics or it being basically irrelevant to any scientific question um so yeah that, that was a that was an afterthought i thought maybe it has something to do with this uh but it became really it became really popular this idea it kind of escaped escaped from this little sphere together with this article who, who also became really popular um and people were using it sometimes as a weapon against each other, which I don't <laughs> like and don't approve of. And there parts, were parts of these, this article that explained this has been like um, quoted a number of times. And I always kind of a little uncomfortable because I didn't think through these, the, the exact wordings. So, you know, I didn't think them through so much because my blog wasn't very big back then. So I didn't really care that much. Um, and it feels like I'm overstating my case a little bit. And now people have just taken it and and, uh, and and run with it. And now basically, it means like in in uh, in Twitter discourse and that kind of stuff. It just means it basically means people who think politics should be relevant to controversial scientific questions or whether it shouldn't. Um, and that's quite different from what uh, Stanovich meant. And it's quite different from many other interpretations. So I don't know what the coupling means. That's the short answer. It, it can, it's a whole family of things, really. That, that was long. Sorry. I just no, that's like, great. I that's great. To tell this whole story. <laughs> there were, um, I think, I don't know if it matters. There were multiple points of uh, entry, uh, at least into the subculture. Like when uh, you wrote yours and I read and I really liked it. Um, uh, I already had the term and I got it from Sarah Constantine. 
Mm. And I think there's substantial uh, overlap in your readership. So I, yeah, I don't know. If it... Yeah, you're right. I think I think I read Constantine and Constantine quoted Drosbucket. Lucy who wrote Drosbucket, and she quoted uh, Keith Senovich. Yeah. So I, th I think that's the, that's the line, yeah. It's quite interesting. I, you know, the concept itself. Yeah, it, it's 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 a really powerful tool just for thinking about you know disagreements, especially in the, the political realm, the scientific realm, when when controversies come up. You know, are, are we arguing about whether it's okay just to abstract things away from the political or not? Um, yeah, uh, it's interesting because I said it, the like decoupling has a has a whole family of meanings, and this this is the one you know politics and science should you know is it relevant or not uh, that one is the most explosive uh, in in terms of you know controversy and stuff but i actually think this the difference between i don't know how i should say this exactly but the difference between the abstract and the formal on the one hand uh, you know the like the perfectly formal the exact like um, uh, like program code in comparison to uh, um, the 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 vague and the um, the sensory on the other hand i think that's a really 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 important important division in how to think about things and it's very important for what what sort of disciplines people like to work in uh and, and it quite affects it affects people uh, quite a lot i think um but this political interpretation is probably one of the more peripheral ones but it's the one that's taken over the whole word. Basically. It's quite vivid. I, yeah. I sent, um, I think I actually sent your article uh, to a professor I had in college oh. and um, was able to, by introducing the term, I think she understood it um, in the more general sense. And you mm -hmm. wrote it in the more general sense. I mean, I think you quote Stanovich. I'm not sure, but I think yeah, you do. Yeah. Uh, and that was actually a really useful uh, concept for that relationship, uh, being able to talk about that with her. It was uh, so I think that was just at least one instance where it wasn't anything close to a weapon. And it facilitated mm -hmm. a lot of positive some communication that probably wouldn't have been possible otherwise, because yeah. I could she was a philosophy professor. So when I was going through my reactions to the text we were reading, I was able to say, okay, well, this might be part of it. And it was a way to talk concretely about that and make it explicit and then consider, okay, well, is it that? And mm. um, anyway, I had on my list of things to thank you for. So oh, like a good appreciate it. Place to, huh. Yeah. 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 I was just, yeah, I was just thinking, uh, I'm, I'm almost aware that when I think something is important or something is really insightful, it reflects quite a lot on, you know, on me when I think something is, oh, it's really important that people are this way or that way. It's usually because I am one of those ways. Yes. There, are probably a, there are probably a lot of ways that people differ that I don't quite understand because I'm sort of in the middle. Yes. But when it comes to this, I have realized, I have understood this tendency in myself to really enjoy the kind of tasks where you can just really sharply divide what is part of the task and what is not. Got it. Yeah. Like this is a closed system. I have perfect information about the system. 
and I can analyze every little piece of it. Uh, that is somehow really, um, really rewarding to me. And the the opposite, where I really don't know at all what is relevant and what is not, and I can't get an overview of the whole thing. It's very stressful to me. I noticed that when I have to do it in my job, I, it's stressful. So in that way, I am very much that type. Uh, and I think it also reflects on how you like to write, because I'm really, um, I noticed that when I cannot make something like perfectly stringent, when I reason, I can show that this is exact, this is exactly right. I feel the need to say, you know, to, um, to hedge and say that I don't know, it might be this way or something like that. What other people can be really, really confident about things they shouldn't be confident about. And while I think they shouldn't be, I kind of, I'm envious of the, of the rhetorical capacity of some people who just be, um, you know, forceful and stylish when saying things that are not as hmm. obviously true as they make it sound because there's there, there's some kind of aesthetic beauty in that but unless it's perfect i can't really act i can't really act that way yeah you recognize do you, rec do you recognize this do you understand what i'm talking about here very strongly yeah. <laughs> okay great it's not good <laughs> Yeah, it does seem like <laughs> some people are able to be more confident with less uh, while being less sure or something. I don't... Yeah, yeah, maybe. Or maybe I'm just second guessing myself all the time unless I can, you know, do something with mathematical precision and I can feel confident that this is correct. Or at least this is correct given these, given these assumptions in the beginning. That's the sort of uh, that's the sort of things you you can you can feel uh, certain about, and that's also why I try to write things that are under the heading of. This is not certain. This is just what I think. Yeah. This is probably a reflection of how my mind works. Uh, you know, take this whatever way you like. Read with caution. Read with responsibility, or, or whatever you'd say. So yeah, it's uh, therefore it's a little. I get a little freaked out if people read stuff and take it that I write and take it very seriously. It's always a little scary because I don't, I can't always say that this is, this is true. <laughs> it's always speculation. Got it. Got it. Um, I want to shift a little bit away from disagreement for a minute. You know, you read a little bit about this, um, read this on your blog. How important is the shift to agriculture for humanity above like that, you know, the obvious, like, Maybe excess car car uh, calories allows us to kind of ex escape some Malthusian trap. Uh, yeah, that is a shift. <laughs> that is a shift a from, huge shift. from the previous topic. Yeah, um, this is this isn't my area of of uh, expertise or or anything like that. I just, I mean, obviously the shift to, to agriculture it it made everything. It made civilization as a whole, and it made, I assume. Uh, bigger bigger societies and it possibly made certain kinds of disagreement if we're going back to that made, made it possible by by making uh, societies big enough that not everybody knew everybody and not everybody was in sync that way and had the same experiences um, but it's almost too big a question I mean yes uh, the shift to agriculture changed everything it created everything about what we know about human civilization um, so I don't know what to say about, you know, yeah, I don't know what to say about it except everything. Uh, if, you, if you could narrow down Huge the question, change. I might have something, I might have something more interesting. 
definitely. Quinn, any thoughts? Uh, I'm thinking of Robin Hanson's elephant and the brain came up earlier. And I know that mm-hmm. he sees that as one of the uh, sort of er differences. You know, you are different mm. that uh, that's upstream of a lot of the specific distinctions. We, he has this model of foragers versus farmers. Oh, yeah. Mine says more like the foragers and more like the farmers. And I have some... Um, I, at least I have that mentally marked as an interesting theory. I never disregard Hanson lightly. Uh, <laughs> but um, it certainly seems like it would create a lot of disagreement. And, you know, the population expansion would create a lot of disagreement. And people not mentally adjusting for the population expansion. I still read forums. And I've seen somebody in the last 24 hours uh, who by their own account, and I believe them, uh, couldn't believe that someone else had never seen people saying X. And for mm-hmm. my part, I do believe that the other person had never seen people saying X because, you know, internet bubbles totally facilitate that. But I also believe that they couldn't believe it because they had seen lots of people saying X. Mm-hmm. That makes total sense. Um, if you're mentally adapted to something like the ancestral environment or hunter-gatherer bands where uh, everyone shares the same social context. We don't have that. And I don't think people have adapted to the fact that we don't. But that's all very loose and jumbled. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand. I think you could say there are, I mean, of course, the the agricultural revolution changed changed everything, but it, it changed us in some specific ways that I think you're alluding to, which is uh, farmer versus forager. Foragers, you know, they have a certain lifestyle, but if you're if you're farming, you have to have a different kind of, uh, you know, long-term outlook. You have to have self-discipline. You have to be able to, uh, to do, you know, hard, boring work in ways that for, uh, I think foraging and hunting isn't boring exactly to people. I don't think it is. I think we kind of adapted to doing that without getting bored. Yeah. Uh, while doing backpacking agricultural labor is, you know, both tough and tough and boring. Um, and it requires, you know, certain things of us that aren't quite natural. And so does, of course, modern, modern society. Uh, something I've been thinking a lot about is how modern society forces us to basically share a community with strangers. Mm. You know, we interact with strangers and we do it through the market. But traditionally, we, you know, in like in the in the human, you know, origin environment, we didn't interact with strangers that much. I mean, maybe sometimes, but for for the most part, we interacted with only with people we knew, and everybody had a reputation. You know, if they were trustworthy, what they were good at, what they could offer you, and and so forth, and things like who had social credit who was considered to be valuable to the group and who wasn't considered to be valuable to the group. That's something that everybody just uh, kept track on in their heads. But in, uh, in modern societies, we can't do that because there's just too many of us. So instead we use formalized stuff to keep track of this like currency. And that inevitably means that uh, the, the social credit that happens uh, with currency, it doesn't match the way we feel that people should have this social credit. I mean, in a in a small group, social credit and who is who is considered valuable 
is judged by you know what people think and in modern society we still want to do that we still want to see what what kind of person is valuable and what kind of person isn't and then we also have this formalized currency system that assign people a kind of social credit you know this person has contributed so this person can take stuff out of the you know out of the common pool of production so there are because we have this this big these big societies there there are two different systems uh, that kind of come into to they kind of clash with each other and i think a lot of uh, a lot of the big political divides we have is how to deal with this uh, how to deal with this uh, this contrast because i think i read the philosopher joseph heath on on uh, the appeal of socialism and he dis- and he discussed some paper that somebody has written about how a, how a socialist system would work and he concluded that it was very very similar to how market based systems work but the core difference was that people were supposed to care about the the community as a whole you would you would keep track of everybody's contributions but it was supposed to be the motivation was supposed to be to care for the community as a whole well in a market system you're you know in the in the adam smith sense you you do it for your self interest and i think that you know in a in like an like an ancestral system like a pre-modern system where where you know people uh, the, um, we don't really have uh, that kind of transactional uh, transactional attitude uh, like I give you this and you give me that and then we go our separate ways instead you build relationships and I think for some more than others but everyone to a, to, to a certain degree thinks that these this market transactions that we have today in a currency based system it um, it lacks something because it doesn't have that that social connection that we're supposed that we think exchange is supposed to be it's supposed to be in that kind of context and it's not and i think some people find it very very wrong somehow and other people find it less wrong that, that was a long one did you follow me on that? yeah no, that's, that was, that's great <laughs> that was a really interesting one um i think i probably i'll, I'll take some time to digest it but I didn't have that uh, framework and that makes sense. I think that fits with a lot of things. Yeah. I think I noted, and I think I wrote in a footnote somewhere once and I thought, Oh, that's going to, I'm going to write a post of that sometimes. But then, then again, I have like a hundred, a uh, hundred outlines <laughs> for posts. I mean, literally like a hundred, but yeah, I think for some, the whole idea of transactions is like impersonal transactions, honest length transactions. is just wrong. It feels wrong. Just straight up wrong. I think so. Yeah. And I can I can feel that as well, but I'm I'm kind of low on the scale. I'm not I don't find it offensive or anything. I just right. realize that it can feel wrong. That you're not in a like in a social relationship with anyone you have exchanges with. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that really matters a lot. And, and like that, even that, even on the game theory side of things, repeated games, you know, it, it's it, it really matters to engender trust and things like that. Where if it's mm-hmm. one off, you know, what's the saying? You can screw anybody once. <laughs> you know it's like yeah. that, that really does matter um before we uh let you go john we've got a couple of overrated or underrated if uh this if you're amenable so i'll just throw a turn oh. turn out okay i'm gonna warn you i'm probably not just gonna give a simple answer that's, that's it's all good <laughs> we'll get to what we get to yeah okay uh, 
Um, overrated or underrated? Uh, the Eurovision contest. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I've been writing about that. Uh, should I expect any of the listeners to know even know what that is? Oh, that, that's actually a good <laughs> point. I got exposed to it early in college, so I, I, yeah, probably not. Actually, I didn't think about that. <laughs> Uh, it's it's an well it's an annual uh, an annual competition between music acts representing various countries in Europe uh, that come together for a, this big live show and live voting for a winner you know who's the who's the best uh, once a year and it's not the artist that's competing it's the song so there's one song that wins every year and what's most appealing to me about it is that it's been going on for like 65 years. It was. Uh, it started in 1956, and it's basically. Yeah, it's it's happened every year except for 2020. It was canceled because of uh, because of COVID. Um, but it's been going on for for that long, and it's so interesting because you can see the whole, the whole history and life of television in this contest. And and there's game theory, and there's lot there's lots and lots of numbers, and there's politics, and there's, oh. You know, there's so much, there's so much uh, history and uh, numbers and stuff to uh, to look into it. So, so I really love it. And then there are then there's a completely different uh, different aspect of it. That's that's like uh, you know crazy staging, uh, gimmicks, uh, flamboyant costumes. You know, anything to grab people's attention because you need to grab people's attention if you want to win and so forth. So. I've been a fan of this since I was 12 or something. And I, uh, I didn't get into it so much like five or 10 years ago, but now I'm back and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. So while I wouldn't say it's underrated, it's a, it's a huge deal. At least it is in, in Europe and uh, where I come from. So I wouldn't say it's, I wouldn't say it's underrated that way, but a lot of people look down on it. So in that, in that sense, I would say it's underrated. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, Wikipedia, overrated or underrated? <laughs> it probably was underrated like 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but now it's probably recognized as being the, you know, the, the, um, the default source for any kind of information. I think people are probably right when they say it's, it's not reliable when it comes to controversial subjects sometimes. I don't know. I haven't done the, the due diligence on that to, to say anything definite. But when it comes to just reference information, it's unbeatable. So I, I don't think I think it's probably properly rated right now. But it used to be underrated. Like it, Infinite Jest, overrated or underrated? Oh That's dear, a tough one. that one. Yeah, That's a really tough one. Yeah, uh, it was. I, yeah, I read that, wrote a review of it, and I did not really care for it. In that, I didn't. I didn't like reading it. Yeah, but I have. It has stuck with me. Uh, it has stuck with me for a long time, uh, and I've been, I'm thinking about it. I'm not so sure I'm thinking so much about the actual story, more than I'm thinking about the book and the experience of reading it. So in that way, it's a very, uh, it's a very postmodern book in that it's about it's about itself, in a way. It's self-referential is that in that it is almost about the experience of reading it, <laughs> uh, than it is about anything in specific i mean it, it has it has some interesting themes but it's also buried in so much that doesn't feel necessary right. to me 
maybe maybe I'd get it if I read it like two or three more times, but that sounds like an, that's an a lot of time proposition. There are other books yeah. to read. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, specialization, overrated or underrated? Um, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this one. Um, oh, do I really have to pick one? <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> It's probably. I think. I think I'd have to pick underrated. Uh, that that might be might be a little uh, diff, uh, a little weird to hear from me, considering I describe myself as a generalist and I'm almost a pathological generalist. But I think, uh, yeah, this is. I think we should divide. Yeah, I think we should divide tasks, perhaps even, perhaps even more than we than we do now. I'm just thinking of things like. People used to have secretaries that did the administration and now people do that themselves and they send a hundred emails every day and they get interrupted 300 times every yes. day. <laughs> and that sort of thing. I mean, my job involves probably doing like uh, hundreds of individual small tasks every, you know, every day. And that's, that seems, that seems inefficient. It seems it doesn't help. Yeah. So that's what I was thinking about when you said specialization. And in that case, I think we should have more, more specialization in that way like people like doctors and teachers they should be basically relieved of all their administrative yeah. administrative tasks and just focus on what they're good at yep. so in that sense i think people should be fo should focus much more on what they're what they're good at and be um, they should have the possibility to do that yeah but then we should also have some people who specializes in generalism and spe the specific intersection of specific tasks that's good that's good <laughs> i like it well john um thank you for coming on no, it was any, my pleasure. Do you have any parting thoughts? And where can people find your blog? Um, parting thoughts? No, I think I've been sharing enough thoughts for the last hour. <laughs> That's good. Uh, and my blog is uh, everythingstudies.com. Or you could probably find me on Twitter uh, if you'd like, which is everystudies.com because everything studies is too long, apparently, for a Twitter handle. <laughs> so it's, instead of things, it's just a T. I don't Got tweet it. a lot nowadays because I'm on a I'm on a tweet fast and I'm feeling a lot better because of That's it. That's good. So uh, <laughs> if you follow me, maybe just expect a few uh, maybe a few post updates and that. Kind of awesome. Stuff. Well, thank you, John. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis, and I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives. 